Happy Saturday. It is November 12th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. And we are two of your airmail impresarios out to figure out the meaning of life. Welcome, Michael. Welcome, Ashley. How have you been? Look, democracy's still intact, okay? Despite the red wave that never materialized, we're feeling very positive about things. Ultimately, it's been a decent week for America. We'll take it. Yeah, we'll take it. Well, I think a lot of people breathe a big sigh of medium relief this week. So there's still a lot to be decided, but it looks a lot better than it did six or seven days ago. I'm hoping that we just get back to business and that politics becomes boring in the next couple of years. Although I suppose that that's a ridiculous thing to say, but I miss boring politics. We have a far from boring show. We have Sam Wasson, author of one of my favorite books about movie making, The Big Goodbye, about the film Chinatown. He's joining us to talk about his new book. In addition, we've got Marcia DeSanctis, who will join us to share her idea of a winter travel destination that you should all put at the top of your bucket list. And speaking of winter and the holidays, food writer and editor Christine Mulkey will stop by to share her thoughts on the best new cookbooks of the season. So it's a great show. But Ashley, before I get to that, should we start right away making it a very airmail subject? Do you want to talk about episode one of the new season of The Crown? No, because I haven't seen it, Michael. I'm pacing myself. It's called Restraint. Oh, so I can't talk to you about it? Sorry, I haven't seen it yet. No, Michael, we're not talking about it this week. And I'll tell you why. I haven't seen the first episode because my husband has been working and you know he's going to murder me if I watch it without him. So that's a domestic matter and I'm going to take care of it. We'll get back on this track next week. There's been plenty of chatter on The Crown already by us and by every other media outlet in the world. So listeners, apologies, but don't worry. We'll be back and at it in full force next week. Okay. Wow. You're really like, I mean, talk about adding drama. This is like, it's just, you're making it a cliffhanger, but so I've got to, I will pause and my thoughts will come at it full bore next week. So stick around. So Ashley, where shall we begin? I kind of want to start with holiday cooking and recipes. Let's get the service, Michael. Let's get the service going, first of all. Don't you think? Let's set the let's set the table with something great from Christine Mulkey, right? Yes. Okay, so tis the season to purchase things, which drives me completely batty and also completely delights me. It's a little bit of both. But we have Christine Mulkey here to talk about the best new cookbooks of the season. If you are hosting a holiday gathering, if you are going to a holiday gathering, these are great to use as resources and they're also great to give as gifts. We're so happy to have Christine here with us. She is a writer for Airmail. She also is a former food editor at both the New York Times and Bon Appetit magazine. She has also written several books on these matters. She is the co-author of Wine Simple with LeBernadens Aldo Somme and Fiden's Simple Dishes That Matter. She's done a ton of things. She also has a great substack called X-Teen if you want even more culinary news. Welcome, Christine Mulkey. Okay, Christine Mulkey, Holiday Cooking... First of all, not only are you an incredible reviewer of cookbooks, as we now know, thanks to your first installment of that matter in this week's airmail, but you're also an amazing home cook. So first of all, what is your approach to the holidays? Do you read the cookbooks first? Do you make a list of your favorite recipes first? How do you do it? I mean, the test of a cookbook is whether or not it makes you dream of a dinner party, right? Are you setting the table? Are you making the menu? Is it all coming from one book? Is it coming from others? And So for me, the holidays really do come from the cookbooks, and that's why the fall lineup is always my favorite. It's their big push. You've got your baking, you've got your stars, and it really just, it sparks the meal. And it's funny because in 2001, Claudia Fleming's first dessert cookbook, The Last Course, came out. And I was reading it, and I thought, 
you know what, I want to make everything in this book and I want to make it for people. And it actually started out that I started this ladies team, which started as a joke and has grown. This is my 21st year. And I now invite about 90 women. I think I was like, I think I know six women in 2001. (laughs) And that's all because of that one cookbook. Okay. You read cookbooks the way that I read gossip columns, which is to say religiously and on the hourly basis. So how many have you been looking at right now? And, And can you walk us through a couple of your favorites that you think everyone should buy as they get ready for the holidays? Sure. I mean, usually for these roundups, I start with about 25 to 30 titles and then I start cooking them which is its own thing. You want to do at least three recipes per to make sure that they actually work because while they're beautiful and the writing is seductive and is it really worth people's time, effort, money to actually buy the book and make the thing? So I cook through them and then I really winnow it down to about 15. Doing it for airmail, I did six per, six baking and six sort of savory mix. And then which ones actually stay in the pile, right? Which ones migrate to the side of the bed or... Do I get a second copy for the country, which is the ultimate test? Claudia Fleming selectable. Yes, of course. Via Corota won't stop, can't stop. I'm working my way up to the salad and actually considering, like, do I clean off my tweezers and do it? Ottolenghi's Extra Good Things is really fun. It's pretty steppy. So, you know, there's also the certain point at which you make the book your own and you start freestyling. So I would say those are my tops. And then in terms of looking at the River Cafe lookbook is just an absolute delight. It's a tiny cookbook that really deserves to be a coffee table book. And then California Soul by Tanya Holland with photographs by the wonderful Aubrey Pick is just an absolute dreamscape. Are you cooking Thanksgiving this year? What is your Thanksgiving game plan? I am a terrible human. I go to Paris for Thanksgiving and just eject. I used to do it with airmail writer Alexandra Marshall, who is not afraid of a turkey with feet on it. Do the feet come off? That's always a question. So this year I'm taking my son to Paris and then we're going to London for Thanksgiving itself. Christine, you read all these books and I'm like, I listen to what you talk about and I think like you must have this clearly encyclopedic knowledge in your head, like almost like a music head knows a gazillion. And so if you were going to make us a mixtape of like a salad, an appetizer and a main course, like what would just pop in your head of like three recipes that you think are would always like want someone to go to? For starters, the salad from Via Corota always a classic. For the main, I'm really loving the Jelena cookbook still. There's a braised lamb with yogurt and herbs and flageolet that's just a delight. I had the audacity to make it once for David Tannis during lockdown and we all survived. (laughs) From dessert, I'm still going to keep trying to make the chocolate nemesis from the First River Cafe book, which I was gifted as a wedding present in 1996. See, I think you should do a mixtape. You should just like, here's my greatest hits of like, if you put together a mixtape for people, but That's just my suggestion for you as an editor. Oh my gosh, Michael, thank you. There's my next book. I mean, in some ways, I helped Biden with a book called Signature Signature Dishes. And it was basically, I want to say 150 dishes that changed gastronomy starting in the 1300s and dishes that really influenced cooks and that trickled down throughout the centuries. And in some ways, that's the ultimate mixtape. And it was just an unbelievable education. Okay, we have our marching orders. I think we're going to have to have Ms. Mulkey back on in a couple of weeks (laughs) because once we get through Thanksgiving, we have another whole season of holidays to get through. So we'll Let's talk bake. more soon. Okay. Let's Thank bake. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. Christine, have a fabulous day and we'll see you in the kitchen. Thank you, everyone. 
Okay, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. You know what's great for after you have a great meal to get rid of your hunger, to sate your hunger? Nothing would be better for your digestion than to maybe sort of just be on a boat drifting down the Nile. That would be very soothing, right? That's the kind of R&R I'm talking about. Marsha DeSantis is one of my favorite, I mean, I hate to be so biased, but Marsha is one of my favorite writers to work with here at Airmail because she's always going somewhere interesting and also has something interesting to say about it, which is not always the case when it comes to travel writing. We're so happy to have her here. She has written about Egypt for us this week. This is after going to Rwanda recently. She also was in Poland. I mean, she's been all over the place. Marsha is a wonderful writer and editor. In addition to her wonderful stories, she is also the author of the essay collection, A Hard Place to Leave, Tales from a Restless Life. Another good idea for a holiday book. Welcome, Marsha to Sanctus. Okay, Marsha, Egypt was a bit of a bucket list trip for you. When did you start getting the urge to go there? Interestingly, I feel like when we have been searching out the ancients, we always just kind of go to Greece. And Egypt just got on my consciousness because of the boat that I ended up taking. A friend of mine in Paris knows the woman that partially owns it. She's a French woman. And she had just been been saying, you have to go, you have to go. The boat is so beautiful. The boat is so chic. It's so glamorous. It's so peaceful. And it turns out my son moved to that part of the world. So everything kind of collided and I had a little window of time. So I was basically sailing up the Nile to see my son at the end. But Egypt, I found incredibly overwhelming. And one of those things like, why did it take me so long to get there? Where did your journey begin? Well, I began in Cairo, but the boats, the boats in the olden days, like in Victoria times, boats started in Alexandria. But now they start south of Luxor, about a half an hour south of Luxor. And of course, all the great, well, many of the great monuments are in Luxor. King Tut's tomb, the Valley of the Kings, the tomb, Karnak, some of the great temples. And so you usually spend kind of a day or two there, which is what I did and get picked up and driven down to a town called Esna, where there's a magnificent temple that is really still being excavated. There are people still working in there on scaffolding. You're kind of walking underneath these people that are still unearthing Egyptian ancient history in real time. It's really fascinating. And then five days is what a a boat typically runs, or at least a sailboat. They have a lot of these kind of steamboat, riverboat looking things with a, I guess they don't have a big wheel, but you kind of imagine they're closed and they have windows, whereas our boat was just completely open. The deck is completely open. There's no windows. It's just cross breezes and you're just very much there in the river, so close to the edge. It's a narrow river too. And so you're very close to the edge. And then you end up just outside of Aswan, which is as close as you can get now to Aswan because of the dam that was built in the 60s. It's also, as you note in your story, the centennial of the discovery of King Tut's tomb. Are they doing anything in Egypt to market or is it anything special that you came across? Well, I think they use these anniversary pegs as ways to bring people there in a way. It's all the, also the 200th anniversary of the deciphering of the mysterious symbols in the Rosetta Stone. So, yeah, 1822, 1922, 2022, it makes a lot of sense. All these things are converging and hopefully maybe 
driving a little bit of a tourism push. It's a very easy place to get to. Egypt is, I mean, there's direct flights. There are very few direct flights to Africa that you can get to Nairobi, you can get to Dakar, you can get to Johannesburg, and you can get to Cairo. So it's a very easy place to get to. And I would say relatively very cheap to be a tourist or to be visiting. Marcia, it's been 10 years since the uprising and to hear Square. Is safety a concern at all for tourists traveling to Egypt right now? I personally didn't feel any safety issue whatsoever. I think there's a relatively stable government. It's like all governments in that part of the world. It's a little bit controversial. It's not universally popular. A lot of people think that the military overreaches and the government overreaches, and it's maybe not looking out for for just average people, but I didn't feel any safety concerns at all and really rarely do in most foreign countries. I mean, I'm not going to Syria or Iraq or places like that, but Egypt felt pretty safe. And and I felt very well taken care of too and very well kind of understood and very well accompanied by Egyptians. I think they do tourism very, very well. I think Egyptians are very good at taking care of international tourists. Speaking of safety then, you're on the boat. I want to hear because you then chose to swim in the Nile, which, as you note in your story, used to have crocodiles and many other, but that must have been an amazing experience just to swim in this ancient river, right? It was an amazing experience. And the more I travel, the more I think that a lot of the palpable mystique that we feel about places often has to do with the river. I mean, the Rio Grande and the, and the Ganges and the Seine and these rivers that have traditionally just where history happened, where armies were transported and where conquering conquering kings were floated upon. And the Nile really does have that feeling of ancient history. And I was a little reluctant at first just because I thought, is this clean? I mean, this is a, a big river that goes thousands of miles through. I'm going to get anyway, many, many countries in Africa. But there is almost no industry along the shores, along the banks. There aren't paper factories or chemical runoffs or things like that, which is an issue in so many rivers. The water felt very fresh and very, was just kind of the time of day that we relished most of all. And also the current is very, very fast. So you're not going to swim there. The current is, I think they said it was 12 knots. So what they do is they take you along a little bit and you float back to the boat on the current and Sometimes you'd grab onto the boat and you'd be hanging onto the ladder and your legs would be just floating, still floating up the Nile because the current was so fast. But that was a big plus, actually. I think that was in a way the most exciting thing that just every day, kind of hot, kind of spent, a little dusty from walking around these beautiful excavations and getting back and just jumping in. It was really nice. I would move Egypt up on the bucket list. I mean, it was a bucket list place for me, but not necessarily at the tippy top until I got there. And I said, that was a mistake. I should have come here 20 years ago and then be coming back by now. So I recommend it highly. And the boats and the Norrell nailed boats. They really are exquisite. Michael and I will be doing our next podcast from one of the destinations along the Nile. Exactly. We'll be doing our Anthony and Cleopatra sort of homage. Speaking of all our stuff about hotels and places to go and travel, I just wanted to know there's a lovely story 
in the issue this week by Marlo Granados. And it is about, if you're coming to New York, one of the places you always want to go any time of year is Bemelman's Bar at the Carlisle Hotel. Well, there's a new reissue of a book that Ludwig Bemelman wrote. It's called Hotel Splendid. It's coming out very soon by Pushkin Press at the end of the month. And it is Bemelman's own story about how he worked at the Ritz Hotel in New York City and kept notes. And it is just sort of vibrating with all sorts of can't be made up, but true stories of what he saw as a young man working there. At 16, he was shipped off to New York City to take this job. He spent the next 15 years working his way up from busboy to banquet manager. And it came out in 1941. It's a sort of a thinly veiled look at this tapestry of eccentric characters and outlandish happenings drawn from his experiences there. Everything from a Cuban guy who's trying to get rid of the car that killed his lover to a Senegalese dishwasher who longs to be a doorman. So it just is a beautiful book that sort of sets the scene of what became a very creative and fertile mind. So I would put that on the top of your list as as a little thing to, we're talking about all the books this week. That's one of them as well. Good to know. Well, enough reading. Let's get over to watching movies in particular. And we've got Sam Lawson here to talk to us about a classic of American cinema that deserves another look. Yes. Sam, as I said earlier, is the author of two of my favorite books. The first is The Big Goodbye, Chinatown and The Last Years of Hollywood. And the second is Improv Nation, How We Made a Great American Art. And he's got this new book out called Hollywood, The Oral History that he's written with Janine Basinger. And we're publishing three excerpts in airmail. We, last week, we published about the beginning of sound movies. This week, we've got Sam's look at how a long-haired band of outsiders with a 16-millimeter camera, $300,000, and, quote, a hell of an idea, reinvented American movies with Easy Rider. And it's a fascinating excerpt from that. And we've got Sam to tell us how he came to write this book, how he came to pull it all together, and what's in store for next week. So please welcome, from Los Angeles, Sam Wasson. Okay, Sam, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. All right, so you've got your new book out with your co-writer, Janine Basinger, Hollywood, The Horrible History. And I imagine, like any Hollywood story, any Hollywood film, this has a tremendous backstory and a tremendous path to appearing in the world. So how did this book happen? And tell us a little bit about the incredible wealth of voices and materials that you guys have in here. I was researching my book about Chinatown a few years ago, and I was looking into trying to find an interview with Anthea Silbert, the costume designer. And there are very few of those interviews. And I ended up at AFI and found this incredible interview with Anthea Silbert, where she talks not just about Chinatown, but her entire career, hours of this stuff. And I, I then was one step away from realizing that this was just only one of over 3,000 interviews that the AFI had just sitting there in, in, in various conditions. And most of them, the world had never seen. And at that point, I just thought, well, I mean, the whole history of Hollywood is right here and told firsthand from the people who actually made it. So the necessity of a book was immediate and obvious. And this week we've got the tale of how Easy Rider came to be riveting. It's a tale that's been told in different ways at different times, but what I think is so revealing here and riveting is you've got voices from Roger Corman to Dennis Hopper, all the way down to, I think, my favorite lot, which is Don Camburn. Yeah, Camburn. It's this peak moment in here where Don Camburn, and set us up, who is Don Camburn and what does he say when he's shown a screening of this film? Well, Camburn was an editor and he was responsible for bringing together all of this footage. I mean, Hopper just showed 
shot so much footage. Didn't really know what he was doing, which probably comes as no surprise. So it was down to the cutting room that this movie, this movie really took shape. And what we have in the oral history is basically everyone of significance who worked on the movie. And in that sense, it really characterizes what this book is about. It is the sources telling you exactly what happened. But you had a moment from Cameron that you liked specifically. Well, no, let's just pause for a second. You've got Jack Nicholson, you've got Dennis Hopper, you've got Bert Schneider, you've got Sam Arkoff, Frank Pearson, just names behind the camera and on the screen. But all of them are just sort of these diamonds that you're finding in all this material that you've got. But I'm referring to, you've got the, ultimately when they screen the film for the vice president of Columbia Studios, Stanley Schneider, who is one of the producer's older brother, and Leo Jaffe, who is president of Columbia, right? And the guys who've made the film are all sitting there watching it. And then the lights come up, right? And so he turns around and says, I don't know what the f- picture means, but I know we're going to f- a lot of money on it, which I just love is because no one understood what the film was, but they just knew it was going to resonate, right? Well, they had a good sense of it. Yeah. I mean, they didn't know how big it was going to be. No one could have predicted. No one ever could predict how big a phenomenon like that is going to be. But Hollywood, and this is a refrain that we come back to throughout the entire book, borrowing from Goldman, William Goldman, nobody knows anything. It's really true that nobody does know anything in Hollywood. You never know what is going to hit. And anyone who tells you that they do is lying or delusional. And we need it to be that way in Hollywood because if we ever pretend or think that we're certain, we've cut off the unknown element of the future that we always need to be considering. That's what art and entertainment should be, a glimpse of something we haven't had yet. So to say we understand it, we know it, we can predict it is delusional and counterproductive. No one knew Easy Rider was going to be a hit. At that moment, they had a good idea. And I think that's an important distinction to make. Sam, in sifting through these hours and hours of of transcripts and interviews, was there any moment that for you was just so exciting to come across or something that like I found something, I can't believe this, this is so beautiful or this is inspiring? Yeah, that happened about once a week. We found an interview with Jack Benny and Jack Benny rarely gave interviews talking about Lubitsch's process on to be or not to be. That just blew our hair back. We found an interview with Catherine Hepburn, an uncharacteristically frank interview with Catherine Hepburn, unguarded, where she's talking about how Louis B. Mayer was so concerned with the condition of of Judy Garland that he enlisted her help to go and basically try to bring Judy back. Had no idea that such a relationship even existed. And then, of course, there's we found incredible testimony about Marilyn Monroe that I'm confident no one has ever heard of. I mean, and that goes on and carries on through the, the present day. So there were hundreds of those. Virtually every time I consulted let's say, the testimony of William Friedkin, who came back over and over again. He was such a delicious teacher. I mean, this I didn't know. What a great teacher William Friedkin is. So there were constant surprises. It was so important that we tell the history of Hollywood this way, because Hollywood is so misrepresented by Americans, so erroneously maligned 
considered a place of sin, corruption, personal and financial exploitation and philistinism that Janine and I have been really fighting our whole lives to tell the story properly and say, these movies that you love, they came from people who are basically really talented and for that reason alone deserve your admiration. And the best way to convey this story was through the people themselves, not you don't have to take our word for it. We're basically out of the book. You can't shoot the messenger here. And that's one of the reasons why we needed so many voices and a book so long. So it was basically irrefutable, folks. This is the real Hollywood. It was a great place, by and large, a place of, as Janine likes to say, three Fs, fun, family, and flexibility. Now, that's, of course, in the studio days, and it is a tragic story because those three Fs have declined in prominence ever since. And the book does tell that story. These people tell that story themselves, from Lillian Gish to Jordan Peele. We wanted it to be like that. We wanted it to be a conversation, feel like a conversation where, where all of these people were, seemed like they were in a room together, even though they never were. We wanted you to have that feeling of being at the greatest Hollywood party of all time, with people finishing each other's thoughts, contradicting each other, building off what the other one was saying. We wanted it to have that spontaneous, lively, collaborative, natural feeling. Okay, so he's speaking of dinner parties, three people in the book that you would love to have dinner with. Oh, man. Billy Wilder, Louis B. Mayer, who's not a voice, but obviously a character, and Lubitsch, Ernst Lubitsch, who's not a voice, but a character. Lubitsch emerges as we always knew he would, as the one director everyone agrees on from the beginning of Hollywood to today. I mean, nobody had an unkind thing to say against Lubitsch, the filmmaker or the man. People, still people can find things they don't love about Chaplin or Alfred Hitchcock, even Spielberg or Coppola, but Lubitsch really does survive as the golden one. Yeah. It's Billy Wilder who had the sign in his office, right? That's right. What would Lubitsch do? How would Lubitsch do it? That's it. That's it. Yeah. Well, from now on, it's going to be, what would Sam do? <laughs> Sam, the book is called Hollywood, the Old History. It's out now. And if you haven't read Sam's previous book, which is The Big Goodbye, Chinatown in the Last Years of Hollywood, one of my favorite books of the last few years, unbelievable reporting and unbelievable just talk about just a mind-blowing tale. But if you love movies and love great movies, thank you for saying. that's one to read. So, Sam, thanks for being here. Thank you. And for that lovely thing that you said about my last book. Thank you. Oh, it's all true. So we'll look forward to seeing you soon. And thanks for being on the show today. Thank you, guys. Okay, take care. Love Sam, love the movie. If you can dare to take a break from binge-watching The Crown, this is the one to see. Yeah. If you've never seen it, it still holds up, and it's still a brilliant piece of movie-making. It's been a good week for American democracy, but it's been a terrible week for all of us at Airmail. We have lost one of our own. Douglas McGrath died this week. He was 64 years old. He was such an incredible talent on so many different fronts. And David Camp has written a beautiful tribute to him in this week's issue. Yeah. And for many of you, you read his work here. And if you don't recognize a name as David writes in his tribute, you certainly know his work. He co-wrote the screenplay for Bullets Over Broadway. He wrote the book for Beautiful, the Carol King musical, which I still think is one of my favorite uh, musicals. 
And he broke into film with his 1996 movie, Emma, that he wrote and directed and adapting the screenplay from Jane Austen's novel. He also gave Gwyneth Paltrow her first starring role. Sadly, he died this past week. He had recently returned to the stage with his own one-man show, Everything's Fine, that was directed by John Lithgow. Just a few weeks ago, as many of you loyal listeners know, we had both of them on morning meeting talking about the show. So it's a beautiful tribute to Doug and a creative life. As David says, he was like the late and similarly polymathic Nora Ephron, a rare human being capable of instigating and maintaining genuine, heartfelt friendships in basketball arena numbers. And I would say that's true. He was such a generous spirit and such a smart, kind, and intelligent and witty person. And we're going to miss him terribly. He also had such an incredible career. He was always hungry for new experience. And he was, in many ways, one of those great, curious, joyful, always wide-eyed creatures that makes New York the greatest city in the world. He lived in New York for 40 years, and he was still marveling at its architecture and landscape and people and energy almost every day, if not every day. I mean, he was almost relentlessly positive about such matters. And I think that is why he worked so prolifically and so successfully. I mean, he's done some acting work over the course of his career. He memorably played Lena Dunham's high school principal in Girls. And then, of course, he's back on Off-Broadway performing a one-man show about his life as of last week. And we're going to miss him terribly. He was such an incredible person and writer. And he was just incredibly generous and funny and also had beautiful manners. Doug was known for always writing lovely thank you notes and treating everyone with such politeness. And those are values that are so important. And I think often overlooked. He was a wonderful person and we, I think, feel fortunate to have known him and been able to work with him. Yeah, had come a far way from Midland, Texas, as David quotes Graydon here. He said, as Graydon said, Doug was such a joy sophisticate that I just assumed he grew up on Park Avenue with an El Morocco swizzle stick in his hand. When I first learned of his boyhood in Midland, Texas, I was floored. So, but as I always say, New York is made up of people who come from everywhere and they become the true New Yorkers. And Doug, as you say, Ashley, really epitomized a true New Yorker. He was the ultimate. Michael, you know what I'm going to recommend this weekend? A Doug McGrath Film Festival. If you have not seen Emma recently, if you have not seen Bullets Over Broadway recently, if you have not listened to the book from Beautiful, the Carol King musical recently, do it all this weekend. They're so wonderful, so happy, and so life-affirming, just like Doug McGrath. So highly recommend all of his work. Okay, Michael, before we go gentle into that good night... Say the weekend. Do you have anything you can recommend? I do. And if some of you have already started The Crown but are looking for a total gear shift from it, I highly recommend Rogue Heroes that starts Sunday on Epics TV, based on the book by Ben McIntyre and created by Stephen Knight, the genius behind Peaky Blinders. This is a big, rollicking, funny, and brash World War II action-adventure drama about the creation of the SAS, Britain's secret special forces unit that sabotaged the Nazis, most particularly in the battle to hold Cairo and North Africa when all of Europe was falling to the Nazis. As I say, it's set in Cairo. It follows the adventures of the men of the SAS. This show is a blast. I mean, literally. And you know you're in for a different kind of World War II drama when, in the first five minutes, they cue up the rock and roll anthem from ACDC, If You Want Blood, You've Got It. So... It's this great mashup, smart, fast-paced mashup of Rat Patrol, Peaky Blinders, Great Escape, and it starts on Epics TV on Sunday, and you can see it there. All right, we wish you a wonderful weekend, and thank you so much for joining us. Michael, will you please read us out?
Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julie Vitale. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.